0: Good morning. Uh, Today's scripture reading is uh, 1 Samuel 11 and 12. If you have one of the chair Bibles, it starts on page 241. Hear the word of the Lord. Nahash the Ammonite came up and laid siege to Jabesh Gilead. All the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. Nahash the Ammonite replied, I'll make one with you on this condition, that I gouge out everyone's right eye and humiliate all Israel. Don't do anything to us for seven days, the elders of Jabesh said to him, and let us send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. If no one saves us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah, Saul's hometown, and told the terms to the people, all wept aloud. Just then Saul was coming in from the field behind his oxen. What's the matter with the people? Why are they weeping? Saul inquired, and they repeated to him the words of the man from Jabesh. When Saul heard these words, the Spirit of God suddenly came powerfully on him, and his anger burned furiously. He took a team of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by messengers who said, This is what will be done to the ox of anyone who doesn't march behind Saul and Samuel. As a result, the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they went out united. Saul counted them in Bezek. There were 300,000 Israelites and 30,000 men from Judah. He told the messengers who had come, Tell this to the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Deliverance will be yours tomorrow by the time the sun is hot. So the messengers told them, told the men of Jabesh, and they rejoiced. Then the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, tomorrow we will come out and you will do whatever you want to us. The next day Saul organized the troops in the three divisions. During the morning watch, they invaded the Ammonite camp and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. There were survivors, but they were so scattered that no two of them were left together. Afterward, the people said to Samuel, Who said that Saul should not reign over us? Give us those men so we can kill them. But Saul ordered, No one will be executed this day, for today the Lord has provided deliverance in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let's go to Gilgal so we can renew the kingship there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there in the Lord's presence they made Saul king. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence, and Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Then Samuel said to all Israel, I have carefully listened to everything you said to me and placed a king over you. Now you can see that the king is leading you. As for me, I am old and gray, and my sons are here with you. I have led you from my youth until now. Here I am. Bring charges against me before the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox or donkey have I taken? Whom have I wronged or mistreated? From whom have I accepted a bribe to overlook something? I will return it to you. You haven't wronged us, you haven't mistreated us, and you haven't taken anything from anyone, they responded. He said to them, The Lord is a witness against you, and his anointed is a witness today that you haven't found anything in my hand. He is a witness, they said. Then Samuel said to the people, The Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors up from the land of Egypt, is a witness. Now present yourselves so I may confront you before the Lord about all the righteous acts he has done for you and your ancestors. When Jacob went to Egypt, your ancestors cried out to the Lord, and he sent them Moses and Aaron, who led your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he handed them over to Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, to the Philistines and to the king of Moab. These enemies fought against them. Then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, for we have abandoned the Lord and have worshipped the Baals and the Ashtoreth Now rescue us from the power of our enemy, and we will serve you. So the Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel. He rescued you, from the power of the enemies around you, and you lived securely. But when you saw that Naash, king of the Ammonites, was coming against you, you said to me, no, we must have a king to reign over us, even though the Lord your God is your king. Now here is the king you've chosen, the one you requested. Look, this is the king the Lord has placed over you. If you fear the Lord, worship and obey him, And if you don't rebel against the Lord's command, then both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. However, if you disobey the Lord and rebel against his command, the Lord's hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Now, therefore, present yourselves and see this great thing the Lord will do before your eyes. Isn't the wheat harvest today? I will call on the Lord and he will send thunder and rain so that you will recognize What an immense evil you committed in the Lord's sight by requesting a king for yourselves. Samuel called on the Lord, and on that day the Lord sent thunder and rain, and as a result, all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. They pleaded with Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants so we won't die, for we have added to all our sins the evil of requesting a king for ourselves. Samuel replied, Don't be afraid. Even though you have committed all this evil, don't turn away from following the Lord. Instead, worship the Lord with all your heart. Don't turn away to follow worthless things that can't profit or rescue you. They are worthless. The Lord will not abandon His people because of His great name, because He has determined to make you His own people. As for me, I vow that I will not sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will teach you the good and right way. Above all, fear the Lord and worship him faithfully with all your heart. Consider the great things he has done for you. However, if you continue to do what is evil, both you and your king will be swept away. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Good morning.
1: So let me encourage you uh, to put your head on a swivel when we look at this chapter, meaning at your Bible, up at me, At your Bible, up at me, because there's a lot of details we're going to have to kind of wrestle with as we walk through the passage, and that'll help you stay uh, engaged. But I want to start by asking this question, and it's a a little bit of a heavier question, but um, I, I think it's an important subject for us to broach today. Here's the question. Why do some people abandon the Christian faith I don't know about you but I have a long too long list of names friends family members and so forth who have initially shown signs that they are a Christian attended church with me bible studies conferences so forth and then over time have grown to show that they were genuinely not a Christian And it's an incredibly painful reality. I can think of a friend named Mark. He was on staff with Crew, a campus ministry up in Michigan. And he and I are sitting in someone's living room. We're talking. This is one of my disciples, mentor of mine, taught me passages in the Bible and so forth. And he um, tells me, first of all, that he's struggling or he's been struggling with same-sex attraction. And so I prayed for him and others uh, in our community prayed for him and tried to help and support him. Well, fast forward a number of years later, Janie and I are now living in Boston, and I see this uh, uh, Facebook post that my friend Mark had just the other day married a man. And I cannot tell you how disorienting and painful this is for me personally, as well as my other friends who had been influenced by Mark, or we have another friend, Ben, who uh, was in a campus ministry with Jenny and I, and, and he was walking with the Lord and, and things were going well. He graduated. He went off to the Peace Corps for a number of years and he came back. We had lunch together. We had a great conversation. Get to the end of the conversation. I said, hey, Ben, how's your walk with the Lord? And he says, I haven't really been to church in the last five years. I was like, okay. And then you fast forward his life, five, six, seven years, and he's essentially abandoned the Christian faith. How do you explain these kinds of situations? And perhaps you have people in your mind right now, and some of these people, of course, are far too close to home. Well, there are all kinds of answers to the question of why, right? So intellectual reasoning or theological reasoning, sometimes a crisis in life leads to a crisis of conviction, Uh, Sometimes it's just spiritual lethargy. It kind of, you know, people are just kind of slowly drifting away from the Lord. But, But I would posit that underneath each of these narratives lies a common theme. Those who have left Jesus have left Jesus because they have lost their fear of God. A friend of mine recently, Pastor Friend, tweeted this just this past week. Listen to his words, quote, the brink of apostasy is not often a high-handed, scorched-earth repudiation of the Christian faith, but rather the slow fade of a heart that's long-grown bored with God. Close quote. I think that's true. These folks have usually slowly lost the ability to live under God's authority, They're quick to find a replacement king. Oftentimes it's themselves who they will choose to live under. And so over time, doubts start to creep in and and spiritual lethargy starts to kick in. And the the Bible starts to feel just kind of, meh. And church kind of feels boring. And all of a sudden, God's authority in their life is radically undermined. Friends, this is dangerous spiritual ground, isn't it? when people start to slowly drift away from the Lord. So what does it mean to fear God? If that's at least part of the antidote, I would say that's largely the antidote. What does it mean to fear God? Let me give you a definition of fearing God. This is loosely kind of inspired by uh, one of my friends and mentors, Kevin DeYoung. Here's what uh, a definition uh, of fearing God is. Here it is. Fearing God is an attitude of respect, reverence, and awe that leads to wholehearted submission and obedience. I'll say it again. Fearing God is an attitude of respect, reverence, and awe that leads to wholehearted submission and obedience. If you think about our fears, you know we, we all fear things, right? Uh, every one of us in this room, we fear things. And whatever we fear controls us. So maybe it's a fear of rejection or a fear of being alone or a fear of disappointing people uh, or a fear of heights or a fear of death. Um, all kinds of fears. And we're all motivated by these fears. They shape how we think and, and how we talk and what we do. Friends, we fear God when we recognize that God knows everything that we are thinking and feeling and doing and saying. We fear God when God's purposes and plans and laws are weightier than anything else. I'm not talking about kind of a slavish fear, okay? It's not a kind of a horrible terror of God, not a sense that God hates me or condemns me. If you're a Christian, that's all been done away with, right? If you're a good, if you have a good father, uh, then you probably understand this. Your dad was the boss. You don't mess with dad, right? Uh, You know, if something went wrong, if you did something wrong, mom would do that threat. Wait till dad comes home. I heard that several times in my childhood. But if he was a good dad, if you respected him, if you revered him, well, then you desperately wanted to please him, right? Because he was good. That's the fear of a good father. That's also like a healthy fear of God. Notice in our story, in chapters 11 and 12, first of all, in chapter 11, Saul cuts up a bunch of oxen, sends it all over the land, and the people, chapter 11, verse 7, are then afraid of God. And it motivates them to act, to gather this militia up to fight against their enemies. In chapter 12, we see Samuel over and over again making these strong exhortations to help Israel fear God. In in verse 18 of chapter 12, God sends thunder and rain. And then notice in that verse, the people fear God. And then that kind of causes them to repent of their sins. And so this story is all about God teaching the nation of Israel to fear God. Now, why? Why why is that? Well, because with the fear of God, they're going to stay close to God. They're going to worship Him and obey Him. But without the fear of God, they're going to lose God. Look at how Samuel's instructions end in verse 24 of chapter 12. Above all, fear the Lord and worship Him faithfully with all your heart. Consider the great things He has done for you. However, if you continue to do what is evil, in other words, if you continue to not fear me, both you and your king will be swept away. So the stakes are high, high, right? This is a big, big deal. Here's the main point of this passage. You'll see it in your note sheet. Uh, Christian, don't grow complacent. Keep fearing God as your ultimate king. Two movements, they're all about training God's people to fear God. The first one, we see Israel learning to fear God as he powerfully saves. This is chapter 11. Now, how does God powerfully save in this chapter? Well, we see it's through Saul. Well, that's true, but this chapter actually highlights the activity of God. It's by his spirit's power. And so God is the great mover. Saul is a mere instrument. That's kind of the big takeaway in this passage. So how does the the story kind of unfold in chapter 11? Well, notice Nahash, the Ammonite king, besieges the city, Jabesh-Gilead. The men of Jabesh ask for a treaty uh, they want to be kind of his vassals. They kind of surrender in a sense. And, and Nahash gives it to them. And in verse two, notice he responds. And he basically says, sure, sure, Israel, you could, you, I'll spare you. Just give me all of your right eyes. It's crazy, right? It's a, such a strange kind of uh, request. Well, this was a brutal, strategic, uh, purposeful act of humiliation. And it meant never-ending subservience from all of these men that would do this because it made those men unfit for any kind of military service you have to understand the left eye was the the eye that kind of covered the shield in battle okay so they hold their shield but the right eye was meant to kind of help them focus on the battle and this is where they're going to swing their sword so imagine if you don't have your right eye you're not going to be able to fight right so it made these men essentially impotent but Nahash also agrees, notice verse three, he agrees to this seven-day proposition by the elders. Now, why would he do that? Like, why not destroy the Israelites right away? Well, because he was super arrogant. I mean, he was so sure of himself. He's so sure of his army. This was kind of a game to him. History tells us that he and his army was, they were on a rampage in other territories and cities, and this was just another city that he's trying to take over. And his army was strong and and they had constantly been, you know, having these victories. And so Israel had no chance. So all of this is really a manifestation of Nahash's arrogance as he's heaping disgrace and humiliation onto these people. Okay. Friends, is this not just like the arrogance of the world as they look upon the people of God? Nahash is gonna die here. Just, you know, who knows exactly when, but he's gonna die. But this Ammonite mentality, this this worldly mindset to maim, to destroy, to strangle God's people, that's still with us today, isn't it, in the 21st century? Jesus himself said, if the world hates you, you know it has hated me before. And friends, our posture should always be one of kindness and respect, and and yet we should simultaneously hold that biblical ground that's been entrusted to us. And when that happens, when there's some rub with the world, we will risk being threatened sometimes, right? Being canceled sometimes? Being attacked verbally or even physically sometimes? A Pastor acquaintance of mine in Oregon, Michael Lawrence, shared some painful details of what's occurring in Portland right now. So this past week, Monday night, around 8 o'clock, a crowd of about 200 people assembled at a park near his church. They marched around the office building and they were chanting slogans. This is in the wake of Roe v. Wade being overturned. And a group of well-prepared, fully-masked individuals broke from the mob, and they smashed every ground floor window on the building, and they covered it with with horrible graffiti aimed specifically at Christians. A reporter was assaulted by the crowd. Uh, Pastor Michael would would tell you, hey, make no mistake, this was a strategic, coordinated strike. Okay. And And he would also tell you, this is probably one of many coming You know, Portland, uh, you can perhaps imagine this. Friends, this is the arrogance of the world violently assaulting the people of God and the cause of Christ. Maybe think of our own city, right? Maybe think of our friend Steve Stevenson and Life Ford and all the other pregnancy centers that share our biblical values and ethics. We ought to be supporting and praying for them. May the Lord protect them, give wisdom and care to them as they move ahead. You know, it's events like these in Portland where God teaches us the fear of God, doesn't he? You know, when, when there's nothing, nothing we can do, we feel helpless, we feel violated, but, but we have to believe that God keeps us and he presides over all of these things, all of these horrible events. And when we have no one else to turn to, what can we do? We can only turn to him, to Jesus. We can turn to him, in the fear of the Lord, because we know he presides over all of these things. We have Jesus with us in the 21st century. Well, Israel, they had God working through this man, Saul. So, so these male runners, we're getting back to our story, they're running all over Israel, they're sending all these messages, and one of the messengers gets to Gibeah, notice, and, and the people there in the city, they begin to weep. You know, just when it seemed like Israel was sailing on smooth, smooth waters, they've got a king, everything's going well for them. Hooray, right? And here we are with another crisis. And we expect to find Saul in a palace, right? But he's in the field behind some oxen. He's doing farm work. His kingship's been announced, but he hasn't been coronated just yet. And so no one's looking for Saul. He's just some guy at this point. But friends, look what happened next. Maybe tempting to focus our attention on Saul's sudden kind of explosion of courage and resolve, but it would be better for us to focus on what caused all of this. Look at verse 6. When Saul heard these words, this report about what's going on, the Spirit of God suddenly came powerfully on him, literally rushed on him, and his anger burned furiously. I love that description, right? It's, it's pretty intense. This, is, this, this kind of indicates an intense, powerful, speedy infusion of God's presence upon this man. And I want you to notice what a difference the spirit makes. A minute ago, this guy was doing what? Well, he couldn't find donkeys. Remember this? He was hiding behind some luggage, right? Um, he's got, he's got a, a servant that seems more thoughtful than he is. Even after being hailed as king, he's back on the farm. But when the spirit comes upon him, good night, nurse. Look at what he, he goes bananas, right? It's like he drank some gummy berry juice, you know, or, or walked into that Mario Brothers star or something. He's got temporary powers, right? And he's, he's almost invincible for a season. I don't want to diminish the infusion of God's spirit upon people, but it's just a highlight. This is just nuts what we see here and what Saul does. He summons Israel's troops under threat. He divides them. Uh, sometime in the wee early morning hours, he routs the Ammonites in Jabesh, right? And then look at chapter 11, verse 9. He told the messengers, this is right before the battle, he told the messengers who had come, tell this to the men of Jabesh Gilead. Deliverance will be yours tomorrow by the time the sun is hot. You know, it's like his Braveheart speech, right? He's trying to, like, rile up the troops and stuff, and and that's what he says. He's he's so confident that this army is going to come and destroy the Ammonites, and that's exactly what they did. I mean, who are you, and what have you done with my Saul, right? Well, friends, the key to understanding the change in Saul is not only the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, but it's also to recognize that in this chapter, Saul is ruling more like a judge than like a king. In Israel's history, judges would come onto the scene when Israel would face a crisis and God would empower them with his spirit. And here Saul is acting kind of like a super judge. This is what the spirit does. He takes a hesitant farmer and he transforms him into a super judge. Pretty cool, right? And we, the reader, we cannot miss this point. So hear me now, brothers and sisters. Salvation came to Israel, not because Israel had a king, but because the king had God's spirit. This is the Old Testament way of reminding us Without Jesus, we can do nothing. Without his spirit, we are unable to produce any sort of God-pleasing fruits. We are unable to love our spouses or work in the office unto God's glory or, or serve our friends or share Christ with our neighbors. I mean, you and I, we cannot be patient without the work of the Spirit in us. But with the Spirit, I mean, even when our world comes down, when we're filled with the Spirit, when we're infused with the Spirit's power. Our internal life can experience resurrection, right? Here in our stories, this is a unique thing that happened. You and I aren't going to be, you know, super judges when we are empowered by the Spirit, but we have access to resurrection power by way of the Spirit. I don't know about you, but I don't need normal resources for this upcoming week. I don't need normal energy and normal, you know, just worldly kind of resources. I need supernormal stuff. I need supernatural power for this week. I'm sure you do too. So the, clo- the story or this chapter at least closes in a beautiful manner. Look at verses 12 through 15. The same guy who kind of challenged Saul's kingship at the end of chapter 10. Remember those guys who were like, hey, we don't think this guy is going to be a good king. Well, they're kind of, people threaten Threaten them, and and notice in verse 12, afterward, the people said to Samuel, who said that Saul shouldn't reign over us? Give us those men so we can kill them. (laughs) I mean, they're fired up about Saul, right? And his great victory. But look at Saul's mercy. But Saul ordered, no one will be executed this day. And here's his reason. This is what I want you to focus on. For today, the Lord has provided deliverance in Israel. The Lord did this. So Saul as he's empowered as he's infused by the spirit he sees things the way God sees things. He knows who the true king is. It's not him ultimately. It's God. God did this. So Saul gets it. But does Israel get it yet? And then notice Saul or excuse me Samuel calls a solemn assembly in Gilgal so an important city in Uh, uh, Israel, and his desire is to renew the kingship. That's an interesting word, renew the kingship. That kind of implies some degree of deterioration beforehand, right? What is being renewed? It can't can't be talking about Saul's kingship because that's not quite official yet. So friends, this is the renewal of Yahweh's kingship. This is a summons to renew Israel's covenant with God. So then finally, as we get to the end of the chapter, As part of this kind of covenant renewal, Saul is coronated as king. You'll see that in verse 15. Everyone's rejoicing, right? You know, for Israel, crisis trained them. Crisis trained them to fear God. And therefore, crisis was a mercy from God. When the Ammonites show up, who are they gonna turn to for help? Will they trust God? Are they gonna submit to him? Would they stay close to God? Crisis is this kind of polarizing force in our lives, is it not? It often reveals not only who we are, but whose we are. It did that for Israel as well. And like Israel, crisis is a mercy for us as well. I want you to think about this with me for a moment. How might three or four or five particular life crises Maybe a painful diagnosis or a death of a loved one, a job loss. How might God have used those very things to train you to fear him so that you will stay close to him? What if without those three or four or five pain points or you know, excruciating scenarios of suffering, without those experiences, you would not have remained close to him? It was those very crisis situations that trained you to fear the Lord. And so this is just another way of one of your pastors encouraging you, hey, give God praise for even the painful parts of your life. He may be training you through them to stay close to him. Let's move on to the next chapter and the next kind of movement in the story, learning to fear God as he mercifully confronts. So chapter 12, now the reason these two chapters are kind of together in the sermon is because what began in Gilgal in chapter 11, this kind of kingdom renewal thing, It clearly continues into this chapter, okay? And the importance of Samuel's speech here, it's essentially a big speech by Samuel. It's indicated by the start. Look at verse one. It says, then Samuel said to all Israel. So this was a moment of national significance, okay? This was Samuel's Gettysburg address. It addressed all of the people with kind of this piercing message at a very key moment in their history. Excuse me. But at another level, I want you to see, it's much more than just a speech. This is actually a trial. You've got witnesses, you've got evidence presented, you've got various people in the dock, right? And so the exuberant victory celebration of, of chapter 11 quickly turns into this serious courtroom drama of chapter 12, okay? And, and first up on the dock, notice in verses three through six, Samuel himself, kind of strange. It's like Samuel had to prove himself to all Israel so that they would trust the words that he was about to share. And sure enough, he was found faithful. And so with that, Samuel the defendant turns into Samuel the prosecutor. And who's up on the dock next? It's God himself. He's on the dock. He's the defendant, and Samuel's kind of prosecuting him in front of Israel. In verses 7 through 11, look at verse 7. Now present yourselves so I may confront you before the Lord, about all the righteous acts he has done for you and your ancestors. So he's he's, he's about to kind of go off on a litany of all the things God has done for Israel. And verses 8 through 11 document God's powerful, substantial, uh, reoccurring mercy in the life of Israel. It's absolutely stunning to consider. Let's just do that quickly. The first thing he mentions in verse 8, just a single sentence, right? A quick reference. And yet this is an utterly monumental uh, event in the life of Israel. This is the great exodus events you guys maybe you've seen 10 commandments or you know um some of the cartoons that are out there as well and and it's just a great event where israel's rescued from the hands of egypt and and they're physically and spiritually delivered from slavery and they're taken to mount sinai and god makes them his people so this was god's foundational mercy to israel everything else in israel's life kind of was built upon this so if you'd ask the question who is israel This was the start of the answer. They are the people whom God saved. Who's the church? Here's the answer. We are the people whom God has mercifully saved, not in the first exodus, but in the second exodus, right? Why do we belong to God? Why why should we fear him? Why should we obey him? Because he saved us. That's what Samuel is getting at with Israel but wait, there's more. Verses 8 through 11 document this kind of downward spiral that Israel went into. This is all in the book of Judges. Four steps in this downward spiral. Step one, Israel forgets God. Step two, God gives them over to another nation as a sort of corporate divine spanking, okay? Step three, during the national timeout, Israel cries out to God for forgiveness and salvation, Step four, God sends a judge or a prophet to save them miraculously and powerfully, right? There was not one time, this is what what he's getting at, this is what he's driving at. There was not one time, Israel, when King God failed to lead you and love you well, even in the hard times. Samuel's point is so clear. God has proven his faithfulness as your king. And yet, despite God's perfect kingship, when they were threatened, what does Israel do? Look at verse 12 of chapter 12. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was coming against you, you said to me, no, we must have a king reign over us, even though the Lord your God is your king. You see that? There it is. So the verdict kind of drops. God is vindicated. Israel's not. Nahash threatens with optical destruction, right? And Israel forgets to cry out to the true king. They they want help on their own terms. Give us a king like the nations, a king or bust. Not in God we trust. And now they had their king and they had a choice. And so it comes right down to kind of the, the midpoint of this speech. And Samuel says, okay, listen, you can fear God and obey him or the Lord is going to be against you. The Lord is going to press against you. Friends, we need not face an Ammonite siege in order to slip into this kind of quiet attitude of unbelief and complacency. A crisis comes on us and what are we tempted to do? Quietly entertain the notion that God has maybe abandon us, or he won't provide for us, or he's engaged elsewhere. You know, the very fact that I'm facing this is a raw indication that God is not for me. And this often takes place in the deep recesses of our soul. It's often very private and silent and low-key, but just slowly drifting away into unbelief, right? And the irony, of course, is that God hasn't left us, but we are in danger of leaving him. So Samuel's kind of coming after Israel because he cares for God's people. And then verse 17, there's kind of this funny turn with with Samuel saying, hey, I'm going to call on God to bring a thunderstorm, (laughs) right? And God kind of does that. Have you ever pressed an argument with a friend? And and you're thinking to yourself, man, this is just oozing with reason and logic and cogency, only to realize that your airtight case is not being heard. You've done this. Nothing's getting through. Well, Samuel gets this. He's laying it all out, right? But Israel may not be phased by any of this. And so what needs to happen? Well, God needs to step in and do something powerful. That's what happens. And what's so special about this thunderstorm during the wheat harvest? That's cool. Why that detail? Well, that's in the months of May and June, which is one of the driest seasons in this particular land. And so the Israelites knew that rain was extremely rare at this time. It's like getting six inches of snow in August in Orlando, right? I mean, I don't think that's maybe ever happened before. And so Yahweh is getting their attention. He's saying, this is really important. And look at the end of verse 18. Samuel called on the Lord, and on that day the Lord sent thunder and rain. What happened? As a result, all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. There it is. And the cool thing about this story is it worked. And at last, the point comes home that, that Samuel's pleading with him. And, and so Israel in verse 19 starts to plead with Samuel for mercy. Hey, can you go tell God to ease up? We're gonna turn away. We're gonna repent. And then all of a sudden, and this is, I want you to catch it. This. this is so beautiful. All of a sudden, Samuel's tone changes in chapter 12, verse 20. What does God do when his people have stopped fearing him as they should? But then they start to finally come to realize their sin. What does God do? Look at verse 20. Don't be afraid. You've done all of this sin, sure, but don't keep turning away. You don't have to sit in guilt or relive your tragic mistakes of the past. You don't need to replay the sins that haunt you as if misery will atone for it. You can move forward. is that good news? You can move forward with simple faithfulness to God. Why is God being so generous here? Well, it's because he's keeping his covenant with Israel. More good news in verse 22. Let me read this to you. The Lord will not abandon his people because of his great name and because he has determined to make you his own people. Friends, you think you're stubborn with your sin against God? He's even more stubborn with his mercy towards you. God has decided to have a people. He's decided it and he will. He will never undo that decision. His whole reputation, his name is wrapped up in that decision. So friends, here is grace greater than all of our sin, right? It's not just God's discipline that trains us to fear God. It's God's grace that does too. Do you remember that? Of course you remember this hymn, Amazing Grace. It's theologically rich. And sometimes we forget, since it's so familiar, we forget some of the the key uh, uh, riveting lines. Here's a key riveting line in that hymn. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Isn't that interesting? That's exactly what's happening here. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Samuel then offers a bunch of instructions and encouragements, verses 20 through 23. But then in verse 24, he circles back to the main theme. I want you to see this one more time. Above all, he says, fear the Lord. There's the main idea that he's trying to convey. Consider the great things he has done. Friends, how will you and I stay on the path to the celestial city uh, as Christian uh, was trying to do in the pilgrim's progress? How will we not allow ourselves to slip into complacency and drift from God? Above all, fear the Lord. That's the answer. Why is that the answer? Well, because as we said before, whatever we fear will control us. When we fear God, we are controlled by his words and his purposes and his plans. We worship him alone. We do what he says. We can pick out his voice from all the competing voices, right? When we don't fear God, when we don't fear him, what happens? Well, his voice and his presence and his rules and his authority, they become quiet and, and dim. They, they slowly start to fade away as, as it's competing with all of the other things in our own hearts and minds. We start to bow to sinful temptations, whether it's theological or intellectual in nature or moral. And friends, to stand up against this, we need something quite powerful, don't we? Something that will strike Fear in our hearts. Isn't that how we nurture and cultivate the fear of God in us? Look one more time at verse 24. It says, above all, fear the Lord and worship him faithfully with all your heart. And then look at this line, consider the great things he has done for you. Isn't this what Samuel has tried to help Israel with? This is how we can grow in the fear of God. God saved Israel 2,000 years ago in that great Exodus event, and that feels so kind of divorced from our personal experience here in the 21st century. But friends, there is a new Exodus with a new Moses who's leading new captives to the promised land, right? His name's Jesus. Jesus is our new Moses who saves us and now rules over us. And so brothers and sisters, delighting in God's salvation in Jesus will lead us to delight in his rule in our life. Now, I want you to catch this. Our belonging to God, God's ownership in our lives, has a double foundation. Not only are we created by him, we are recreated by him, right? We're not only made by him, we are redeemed by him. Thus, thus we are doubly his. And this is why we ought to fear him. This is what Samuel's trying to help Israel understand. And as I said earlier, the stakes are high. Let me give you, let me give you an example. There's so many verses on the fear of the Lord in the Bible. Here's one from one of my favorite Psalms. This is Psalm 25, verse 14. The friendship of God is for those who fear him. Do you hear that? The friendship of God is for those who fear him. I mean, we, we ordinarily wouldn't put those two concepts together, and yet the psalmist does. God will stay close to you, and you will sense his nearness if you fear him. It's, it's bananas, right? but it's true. you know. it reminds me of the best relationships between athletes and coaches. I was just reading about this this past week. Uh, Effective coaches unite love and authority, okay? And and you've experienced that if you've been an athlete before. Uh, The coaches, they love their athletes, but they expect 100% obedience, right? And their athletes absolutely enjoy them and revere them and respect them, but they 100% follow them too. We aim for something similar with God. From his throne comes tenderness and gentleness and kindness and goodness, but also flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, right? There's a sense in which we want to rush in and touch God. There's an equally powerfully sense that we want to just fall down and worship God. That, my friends, is the fear of God. Let me give you three quick things that will help cultivate your fear of god so if you're taking notes jot these three down think about them later number one reflect on the enthronement psalm so it's psalms 95 through 97 that will help you reflect and cultivate the fear of god number two take the fear of man class that's starting next sunday july 10th okay it's going over this wonderful book on this very topic it's called when people are big and god is small by ed welch highly recommend the book and the class uh, and then number three, read R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. It's a wonderful book, and it's riveted me and given me a, a big vision of God. So brothers and sisters, let me ask you just a few diagnostic questions as we're slowly starting to come to an end. Uh, what would change in your life today if you had a healthy fear of God? Would you drink too much yet again, even though no one are, no one is around to kind of call you out? Would you dishonor your parents? Would you flirt with a coworker? Would you bully that kid? Would you show favoritism to some and hold others at arm's distance? Would you soften up the Bible's teachings on sexual ethics or gender identity or life in the womb? Would you fudge the numbers at work? Would you move so quickly to cancel someone who's offended you instead of obeying God's commandments to forgive and reconcile with them. Friends, if you, if you lived Coram Deo before the face of God, right? If you had that sense that he was watching over you, what would change in your life? Because notice what the fear of God does. I mean, notice in these chapters, Israel, it spurred this nation to do extraordinary things. In chapter 11, it was a battle. In chapter 12, it's repentance and obedience. It's the fear of God, right? And think about this with me, going back to Exodus. Speaking of Exodus, going back to Exodus chapter one, it was the fear of God that led two midwives to refuse Pharaoh's order to murder babies. Do you remember this? They did what was right even when they were told to do wrong by the strongest potentate in the ancient world, the Pharaoh, right? And God blessed them for it. You see, the fear of God isn't just a somber reality that. It's meant to kind of keep you in line, stay in line, you know. It's an attitude, rather, of submission that frees you up to take risks for God and do good to other people. It's a wonderful thing, like it did here for Israel and Saul. And so let me ask you that question. If if you're free from fearing people or circumstances or fearing rejection, think of what you can do for God and for others. Five years ago, a missionary family, Jenny and I, uh, know who minister in Burkina, Faso experienced some persecution. Their ministry was uh, uh, making disciples and planting churches in new villages. And just a few summers ago, two Christians were killed there by jihadists. So they started to experience persecution. And there's now regular fighting among the villages and a strong terrorist influence in that region where they minister. And so every day, this family and their team face uncertainty and physical discomfort and threats. Those are their very real fears every single day. But friends, they fear God more than they fear people. And how does that show up? Well, they continue to blanket the country with missionaries and they plant churches and preach Christ and train up local leaders. The fear of God doesn't hinder them or limit them. It actually releases them for more ministry, right? Well, what about for you? What about for you? If you feared King Jesus more than people, what could you do for God and others? So brothers and sisters, don't grow complacent in your faith, in your Christian faith. Don't coast, don't settle. Fight to fear King Jesus more than all of your other fears. Fight to worship Jesus as King above all other rival kings because as the book of Proverbs says, The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Amen. Let's take a moment to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper.